Our reading for today is the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you are members of my family. You did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, well, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I detected a, a note of uh, reservation before everybody said, thanks be to God. <laughs> Except for the sheep, of course. They were fine. Anyway, let us pray. Lord, you come to us incognito. Lord, you come to us in disguise. Lord, you come to us as the poor, the stranger, the broken-hearted one, the lonely one, and the homeless one. We pray that through your living word you might uncover our eyes to see your presence in disguise. Amen.
So today we continue our sermon series on six core practices for following Jesus. We started with spiritual friendships, we moved our way to worship, we wiggled our way into reading the Bible, and now we come to something a little bit different than the rest of them. It's the practice of service. Service. The simplest definition of service is doing stuff for other people who need it. You can write that down. That'll be in the dictionary one day with my name beside it. Service, doing stuff for other people who need it. Jesus' great commandment or direction to his followers in the Gospel of Matthew is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength on one hand, and to love our neighbors as ourselves on the other. In fact, Jesus, the fact that Jesus puts the two together means that we can't fully love God without also loving our fellow human beings with that same kind of depth. If we love God and are indifferent towards or hate other people, then we aren't truly loving God. Without service, the whole thing falls apart. And our scripture passage today that everybody was so excited for when it was read is the prime example Perhaps the most extreme example of the importance of the spiritual practice of service or of neighborly love, or in the old way of saying it, good works. Here we're given an image of the end of time. You can see this ancient tapestry on here that tries to depict that. We're given this image of the end of time, and Jesus has returned with an army of angels as cosmic judge sitting on a cosmic throne. We, of course, don't need to take this as a photograph that's been mailed back to us from some time in the future. But it does image a future time beyond history as we know it. The Anglican priest and writer Robert Capon says that it's a time where the iceberg of divine presence running under all history, at least at last, thrusts itself up in one grand never to be hidden again, arrival. That the divine that we can sometimes sense but can't see is unveiled, and the truth of all history, every moment, every human life is brought into light and held up to divine scrutiny. The Son of Man has come in glory, says Capon. Everything and everyone is out in the open. And before the judge, it says, all nations are gathered, which means everybody. All people, Christian, non-Christian, good, bad, faithful, unfaithful, ancient people, modern people, and everybody in between, they're all gathered here at this one divine moment. They're all here, and they're neatly divided into two long, separate lines. I don't mean to intentionally set up the lines as the two parts, sides of the church. Um, you're like, I can tell what Ryan thinks of me. But they're neatly divided into two separate camps. The first camp, it says, are to be called the sheep. We find out that they are to inherit the kingdom, it says. 
That is to say, they will get to experience the world set right. The coming together of heaven and earth, the establishment of never-ending joy, justice, and bliss that the universe was created for. It's the gorgeous stone path leading past blooming flowers on a sunny day, leading up to the perfect, cozy home, and one that will stand into eternity. Why do they get to go that way? Because they served Jesus, it says. He was hungry. They gave him food. Thirsty, they gave him water. A stranger, and they welcomed him, clothed him when he was naked, and cared for him when he was sick, and visited him in prison. And of course, the sheep sort of look at each other, and they say, uh, I don't remember that. When did we do that, they ask. And Jesus tells them that they did that when they welcomed, fed, clothed, cared for, and visited the least of these who are the members of my family. And when they did that, they did it to him. When they cared for the poor, the outcast, the person on the margins and in need. They had the chance to serve the way Jesus served, and they took it, and in doing so, they finally were actually, they finally were actually doing it to Jesus himself. And that's earned them a spot in the kingdom lineup. A first-class ticket and a reservation for the penthouse suite. It's all there. The second lineup, though, these folks are called the goats. We find out that their line's a conveyor belt leading to nowhere but off a cliff into the eternal fire, Jesus says, prepared for the devil and his angels. Seems kind of harsh. Why? Because they didn't serve Jesus, it says. They didn't welcome, clothe, house, feed, or care for Jesus. And when didn't we do that, they say? When they had a chance to care for the poor, the outcast, the person on the margins, and the person in need. They had the chance to serve Jesus, and they didn't take it. Instead of following Jesus' directions, they turned away, they ignored, they shrugged, and in doing so, we find out that they actually did it to Jesus himself. They turned their backs on him in the form of the hungry, the homeless, and the sick. And in doing so, they earned a donkey ride and an open-ended reservation for the furnace room, so to speak. That's the second lineup of the goats. Like I said, we don't have to take this literally, but our passage from Matthew 25 is the quintessential New Testament text about the importance of service because it lays out that our eternal destiny, the meaning of our lives, is bound together with how we treat the poor, the lost, and the broken. According to this text, is that in the end, when all is said and done in the universe, how our lives will be judged is by what we do 
or don't do in help and service to the poor, the hungry, and the sick in this life here and now. And it sounds like a decent motivation for service, doesn't it? Serve the, serve the poor, feed the poor, or else. You're either a goat or a sheep, pretty cut and dry. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But of course we all know that it isn't that simple, that cut and dry. Because how much is enough service? If you've seen the recent documentary on the famed Mr. Rogers, we'll have heard that up until the moment he died, he was worried that he was a goat and not a sheep. Mr. Rogers, whose whole life was devoted to the love of neighbor, was worried that he didn't do enough or help enough. Same thing with Mother Teresa, now Saint Teresa. Despite living in poverty and committing herself to the children in the slums of Calcutta, she always thought she could do more and help more up until the day she died. She was terrified that she hadn't done enough. And it reminds me of the movie Schindler's List. If you remember this scene, despite risking his neck to save countless Jews from Nazi death camps, there's this poignant scene near the end where Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, has this pang of guilt for not having done more. He sort of holds his Nazi party ring, which he uses to stay incognito, and he says, this ring could have saved 50 more. So what does it take to be a sheep instead of a goat? How many of the least of these do we have to serve to finally get it right? Even if these great people have done enough, which they never thought they did, which is always the interesting thing about great people, they never think they do enough, what hope is there for any of us? What hope is there for me or for you? What do we have to do to justify our existence? Truth be told, it's actually inconsistent with the rest of the Bible and Jesus in particular. I'm going to say that this text has some inconsistency in some way. This whole scene portrays the practice of service as a means to an end. It turns human life as a giant exercise in earning our way into God's goods books or doing enough things to justify our own existence, which, as we know, is an impossible task. If Mother Teresa couldn't do enough, then I'm not sure if I can. Moral perfection is an impossible task because the moment where we think we've made it is the moment where we lose it through self-satisfaction and self-justification. The moment we think we've made it is the moment we stop moving, whereas, according to the Bible in general, it's God's love that is completely unearned. Salvation, healing, eternity, fullness of life, according to the Bible, these things are all an unearned gift from God, not a personal achievement to being one or to be one. So if serving the least and the lost is about justifying our own existence or earning our way into heaven, it seems at odds with just about everything else in the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. It just doesn't fit together very well. 
without downplaying this text, it's a hard one, and without downplaying it's the harsh demand, it's challenging to say the least. We shouldn't ignore that. I want to point out something that I think is more significant in this text. This is an apocalyptic text. Apocalypse meaning unveiling. And the thing about apocalyptic text means that they're usually meant to tell us something about the present more than they are the future. They want to shine a light from the future on the present day to help us see the hidden realities at work that we can't seem to see on our own. So what this text is unveiling as an apocalyptic text is the hidden presence of Christ, the mysterious unseen reality of God here and now. Here's what the great 20th century theologian Karl Barth, who's my homeboy, if you want to know, here's what Karl Barth says about this text. But where is he, being Christ, hidden now, Barth asks, with God at the right hand of the Father, in his word and sacraments, meaning the Bible and the practices of the church, in the mystery of his spirit, which blows where it may. All of this is true enough, but it is presupposed in this parable of the sheep and goats that he is no less present, though hidden, in all who are hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and in prison. Wherever in the present time one of these is wanting for help. Jesus himself is waiting. Wherever one of these is wanting for help, Jesus himself is waiting. When we think about God, we tend to think of a sunset. Or we tend to think of a baby's face or an orca whale spouting seawater before it flips on its belly, or any other remarkable, joyful, beautiful thing in our world, which is true enough and fair enough. But according to this text, if we want to find God, if we want to encounter the sacred, encounter the holy, then the first place to look is in the lives of people who suffer. It's in the lives of people who struggle and people who go without. People who are literally imprisoned, whether their own fault or no fault of their own, or people imprisoned by poverty, addiction, or the outcome of their own sins. Where God seems to be most absent, Jesus says, it's where he is and where God is most present. And believe me, it can be the hardest thing to see, especially in the face of the ugliness that can come out of ourselves and our fellow human beings. I had a week, oh boy, where this was the hardest thing to see. But this is where Jesus says he is. 
What you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do unto me. Jesus says he's in present in the least and the lost and the broken and the suffering. So the spiritual practice of service is not a simple good deed. And serving a sandwich in the soup kitchen, we're looking for Jesus. And handing out a cup of coffee at the drop-in or handing out a bag of groceries at the food pantry, we're opening our eyes and our hearts to the divine spirit of life. And in simply loving, respecting, and going to bat for someone who the world sees as unlovable, according to Jesus, we're not just loving them. We're loving the Lord of all things. It's an act of faith because it's not obvious to see or easy to do, but it's where Jesus said he would be. It's where he promises that he is here and now. So service isn't about proving our moral superiority to the world, proving that we're sheep instead of goats. It's not about earning our way into God's grace, which is impossible. Or on the flip side, earning ourselves a ticket out of eternal fire. It's not even about being a good person, whatever that may mean. But followers of Jesus practice the discipline of service because we believe that's where we will find God. And it's where our own hearts begin to beat in the same rhythm as the heartbeat of the universe. Because in seeing Jesus in the least expected places, and in serving Jesus in the least expected people, we're somehow made to be more like he is. And that's the mystery. In doing so, we set our feet on the path of God's eternal kingdom. So I pray that God may open all of our eyes to the hidden presence of Christ in our midst. I pray our hands are given the strength to serve, and I pray that our hearts may be open to receive him by receiving his people in love. Because that's what service is all about. Amen.